Neurology is considered by many students and trainees to be one of the most difficult areas of clinical practice. With its daunting array of symptoms, signs, tests and treatments, it can seem impenetrable and, frankly, impossible. At Teach Neuro, we don't think it needs to be this way. As Sir William Osler, titan of clinical training and co-founder of Johns Hopkins Hospital once said, the very first step towards success in any occupation is to become interested in it. This series of podcasts takes an in-depth look at specific areas of clinical practice each week. This week, we talk MND with Dr. Tim Williams, consultant neurologist, medical director of the Newcastle MND Care Centre, long-time colleague and mentor. I'm Neil Archibald, a clinical neurologist based in the James Cook University Hospital in Middlesbrough. I'm interested in education and all things neurology. I started by asking Tim, what do we mean when we say MND? So, so it was the first question, Tim, really, that I was kind of interested in really as a, as a very broad mm. stroke thing is, you know, we, we're, we're used to as neurologists um, talking about motor neuron disease. And I think as neurologists, we recognize that that's maybe not just a single entity. But if we were thinking about just our SHOs for now and, and you know, what they see, Mm. Um, you know what, what? What should they be thinking about as MND? What is MND? Okay, so to start with, I would go back to absolute basics. So I, I would say that obviously in, in adult neurology, the majority of what we see is acquired disease of various types, and I think within that, a large category of disease will be late onset acquired neurodegenerative disease. Mm-hmm. So by that, I'm thinking of conditions like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and neuron disease, and a number of, of others. And we think about those conditions together, um, or have done traditionally, because they're characterized by a number of features um, that I think give you a structure about which to start mm-hmm. thinking about them. So they're, they're generally speaking, diseases of, of later life. So age is the biggest single risk factor for developing those conditions. They're all characterized by the relatively selective loss of particular groups of nerve cells, so obviously motor neurons in the context of motor neurons disease, but I think increasingly we recognise that there are, uh, in the same way people for 30 years or more have talked about non-motor complications of Parkinson's disease, we would now think about non-motor complications of motor neurons disease like dementia and other problems that go along with it. All of these conditions are relentlessly progressive. I think if we're honest, of uh, in the broadest sense of unknown etiology um, and are without effective treatments that truly have an impact on disease progression. So you're fortunate that you have lots of useful symptomatic therapies in the context of Parkinson's disease, but, and and although they they are very effective, they have of course no impact on the underlying disease process. Um, And most of the conditions are, as I say, relentlessly progressive and, and ultimately fatal sadly um and a proportion of those conditions in all of those settings are um genetically determined so that's very small in number or percentage wise in terms of things like alzheimer's disease or parkinson's disease a bit more in motor neuron disease and of course very high in something like Huntington's disease yeah um if we think more specifically about motor neuron disease i think increasingly now um people will start thinking about this as as a sort of syndromic diagnosis and that the the final common pathway is motor nerve death, but that the pathway whereby different patients get to that point of, of ultimately of motor nerve death is probably very different, uh, and which might in part, I know we're going to talk about it later, might in part explain uh, the variability in age of onset, um, site 
of onset, speed of progression, and the nature of, of some of the other perhaps non-motor symptoms that you might see in the context of that disorder. So um, I, I, it's a useful way of thinking about it. Is it it's a bit like tributaries flowing into a river and ultimately into an estuary. You know, the endpoint for all the water that goes into that waterway uh, is is the sea, mm. but the pathway whereby all those droplets of water get to the sea is very different. And I think that's a, a way of thinking about motor neuron disease, or at least where we are with our understanding as yet. Okay. And so I think a lot of focus um, recently, and I think going forward now, is, a, is going to be about trying to split motor neuron disease as best we can, because it's likely that the treatments are going to be dependent upon the pathway that, whereby you get to that disease point. So okay. the simplest way of thinking about that is people who've got genetically determined MND might well be very different to to people who might have MND as a sporadic condition. So there's an immediate way to try and categorize and sub-dissect. So MND. I suppose, you know, there's that sort of distinction in medicine, isn't there sometimes between the lumpers and the splitters? Mm. Of uh, And in general, I think it's more, I guess, kind of pra the pragmatist once you you want to be a bit of a lumper in your clinical yeah. practice and say, this is what this looks like to me, you know, pragmatically is what we're going to do. But I guess what you're, you're getting at, and I think we're seeing this with Parkinson's as well, is that we're now having to really are going to have to split it a bit, aren't we? Yeah. So I, yeah, I like, so as you say, it's sort of pragmatist and the person who wants in life things to be relatively simple has always wished that this would be a big lump. Hmm. However, it's now becoming an undeniable fact that this is going to be a condition that we're going to split. Right. And, and, and the reason for doing that, I think there are two big drivers for that. One is a better understanding of the disease. Um, and number two, it, that way, I think, might lead us to therapeutic avenues. And again, we're going to talk about that a bit later on. Yeah. But, you know, the, but if we continue to say, well, this is just one big problem and the solution to this is, is a unifying one, um, I think we might find making progress very difficult. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, I, I think back to when I was a trainee, um, you know, and and there was a, we, we use a lot of terminology in, in neurology, don't we, which is kind of unhelpful sometimes, or, well, or maybe keep, keep people out of it, I suppose. Yeah, or, or even as just a euphemism, it's a bit like, you know, like uh, kind of actors don't talk about Macbeth, do they talk about the Scottish play? And there's this sort of idea that, you know, if you utter the words MND, in earshot of a patient that, mm. you know, that that will become their diagnosis or they'll overhear. And so, you know, I can remember as a junior doctor having this kind of euphemism for motor neuron disease of, of anterior horn cell yeah. disease. Um, and I suspect quite a few folk maybe still either use that or, or have come across that. Is, is it mm. worth kind of myth busting that slightly? Because I, I, I've never found that helpful. So, I mean, I, I, my general rule is that I will, avoid wherever I can as for a long as long as I can using the term motor neuron disease with patients until I'm certain that that's the diagnosis right um, because of the impact that that has um, in terms of you know and there are you know terms that one can use a bit like you know the terms that you use in front of patients about cancer isn't about you know mitotic disorders and that kind of stuff there are, yeah. there are terms that you can use I actually don't like anterior horn cell disease as a descriptive term for motor neuron disease because it's much more than that you know, if it's yeah. just about the anterior horn, then it would all be a lower motor neuron syndrome, and that would be that. But very clearly, it isn't. Um, so, as the various terms that people are going to use, that's one that I would I would um, attempt to persuade people to avoid using. 
Yeah, and I think certainly when I was um, a registrar in Newcastle um, and training under you, you 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 often I think if I remember rightly use the term like a motor system degenerative disorder yeah. as yeah. a better way so, of thinking about MND. Yeah. So, and part of that comes back to what I was saying before, in that you know that we see motor neuron disease manifesting in very different ways, and and you will have seen, and I've certainly met plenty of patients who've got a very indolent condition that certainly their motor system is degenerating, but it's got a disease course which is so slow that the likelihood is they will die of other causes before their motor neuron disease catches up with them. Yeah, okay. And so in that, in that situation, I often say to patients, I would think of, about this as a motor system disorder, but I will always, where I think that's what it is, I'll always use the term motor neuron disease with them because I say at some point somebody in front of you is going to say, well, this is motor neuron disease and I don't want you to have not had that term used yeah. before. But I, I, when... You know, if you and I, to be fair, and certainly the lay public, um, non-medical public, think about motor neuron disease, then immediately what brings to mind is a catastrophically rapidly progressive degenerative disorder where people die within a few years. Yes. Um, and so that's why I think in the context of patients who have a disorder where their motor nerves are degenerating, so at any one snapshot point in time, it looks like what you and I recognise as textbook motor neuron disease, but yet, but yet they've had it for 15 or 20 years, then... I don't think using the term in that setting of motor neuron disease is necessarily very useful. So yeah. that's where I would say, well, I think this is a motor system degenerative disorder, as you've as you said. I mean, it's a very arbitrary distinction. True. And I and and it, I use it again, coming back to what I said before, because the likelihood is we're probably dealing with disorders that have a very different etiological pathway, and hence the difference in in evolution of their of their conditions. Or you know, there are factors which are modifying the manifestations of that disease uh, and so our approach one's approach to it both diagnostically and particularly as we go forward therapeutically might well be very different and i think the other thing that i think find useful when you know when when i sort of took that step back step away from anterior horn to a motor system thing is just mm. then, you know i think certainly for our trainees this idea that there's a lower part to the motor system, the lower motor neuron. Mm. And when that is damaged, you get a certain kind of pattern of neurological features clinically. And then there's an upper part to the motor system as well, the upper motor neuron, which has its own sort of distinct clinical features. And I think um, MND gets very confusing if you see it through the prism of only one little bit of the motor system. Is, is that yeah. a fair comment as well? Yeah, I, 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 yeah. If you get locked too locked into that, then I think that's that's true. And again, in terms of thinking about mechanistically about um, you know what's behind motor neuron disease, then increasingly now, uh, you know, as we've already started to touch on, people are thinking about this as a system problem. Mm. You know, this is a network, and you know that uh, you know expression sometimes uses that the cells that are linked together often die together. Yeah. So you know, it's worth thinking about that the the motor system comprises you know a cortical motor neuron with all its various connections down to and including the, the spinal mo lower motor neuron and then out to the, the muscle, the, the neuromuscular junction, and of course all the, neuro, uh, the neuronal neuronal synapses in between. And it's trying to think about that as a system and as a network, I think ultimately may give us some insight into why we, we see the disease evolve in the way that it does. And, and I suppose... Sorry, I mean, the yeah. lower neuron, upper neuron differential is useful in, in terms of thinking about the clinical features. You know, it's still very useful to think about yeah. 
the clinical features that are there and thinking, well, this isn't, you know, a purely a peripheral or a central problem. This is a, a as we've just been touching on, this is a set, this is a system problem. Yeah. And I think that's you sort of, you know, again, thinking about, uh, you know, some of the more junior members who are kind of dialed in, but um, who kind of interested, but maybe haven't got that sort of um, basic knowledge kind of cemented yet. Mm. This idea that um, you know, they're, I mean, the most common form of, I guess, common form of MND that we see is is a kind of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, yeah. AL, ALS kind of phenotype. Mm. Uh, and for my money, that's the one that I guess our trainees should really focus on. Yeah, and, and, you know that, and that's going to represent you know seventy five percent plus of the patients that they're going to see with with motor neurone disease. And you know, it's the sort of textbook description of people with you know relatively rapidly progressive um, degeneration of the motor system with features of both upper and lower motor neurone dysfunction. Um, that the majority of whom will have limb onset. So, you know, 80% of the patients that you see with, with the ALS phenotype of motor neuron disease will have limb onset disease, i.e. starts in an arm or a leg or whatever. And the other 20% will have bulbar onset. But again, you'll typically see, even within the, the bulbar musculature, features that look both like a central and a more peripheral phenomenon. Um, but I, I think, again... The, the classification of MND into, and again, it's one of those things that you listed, something to perhaps talk about, the classification of, of MND rather simplistically into different phenotypes um, is useful on a population basis mm. in terms of in indicating you know, likely prognosis and all the rest of it. But it, on an individual basis, it's, it's very difficult. And, and, and what I spend a lot of my time doing with with the patients who are referred to me is trying to is where I can to individualize their symptoms and their presentation to try and give them some idea about where they are in the disease course and how their disease might behave going forward. So less uh, less a focus because we we get this asked a lot, I guess, in clinic. Like, what type of yeah. AS have I got? What type of MND? Mm. And I, you know, and I've, I I feel that's that's kind of throwing the spotlight on the wrong bit isn't it yeah yeah i i, yeah, I agree and i and patients as you, you rightly say patients very frequently ask that and i said well if you want to know i i would consider it to be x y or z but mm -hmm. then i'll go and say but actually what's more important is how fast or slowly this might be evolving mm -hmm. and which components you know which which anatomical areas are being affected because they're, they're those are the things the patent the precise phenotype of your disease is not necessarily going to delineate your prognosis what is is going to be you know where it's affecting you and how fa fast it's evolving so you know disease that happens to pick off diaphragmatic function and, and you know ner phrenic nerve early in disease course is clearly potentially going to be more life-threatening than is disease where you might lose low limb function very slowly in a kind of flail leg pattern which Got you. yeah uh, you know that that you know may look like an als type pattern of motor neuron disease but in fact that that you know, slowly progressive lower limb wasting or whatever is is one which i would recognize uh, you know has been associated with us with a, a relatively better prognosis okay and I, and I think that is really useful because we do get a bit hung up and certainly in training you get hung up on you know trying to think well how does mnd present it's inc often insidious i you know i've i'm sure i mean you see more than me obviously tim by definition but okay. patients presenting to respiratory clinics to musculoskeletal clinics to all over the place often mm. for a long time before they come in yeah and i and i know we have um 
at least one GP in the audience who's um, posed a, a question already. But, you know, I think GPs in particular must have a very difficult time spotting MND early on. So they, they, I mean, they do and they don't. I'm, I'm given, you know, the sort of teaching from medical school, you know, about GPs only ever seeing, you know, one or two cases of MND in their whole careers. Mm. Um, so two comments on that I would make is these days, of course, with pooled lists, it tends to be they'll probably see a bit more than that. And so within individual practices, I, I would guess most of the practices I've dealt with now in the Northeast will have had several cases through their practice over the 20 years that I've been in post, number one. And, and number two, actually, I'm always impressed with how often GPs call MND, although it's something that they very rarely see. Mm. There are, you know, and I guess that those that tend to be much more typical ALS-type presentations, but there, I think they're often very good at, at, at calling it. Much better than you might anticipate. Yeah, well, that's good to know. Uh, and I think no, I, it is worth kind of thinking, yeah, you, you know, if, if you think about the the kind of muscle groups that are affected, you know, for me, when I'm teaching the medical students, I'm like, well, okay, you know, so if you've got um, limb muscle affected, then you'll get limb symptoms. And if they're respiratory muscles and diaphragmatic, then you expect respiratory symptoms. And if they are um, you know, if it's innervation of the tongue and the palate, then you're going to get speech and swallowing symptoms. And I think sometimes people do get make it too complicated. Yeah, I, I and I think it is as simple as you know. I, the old adage that I always say is one: you know, M and D can start in any muscle in any pattern that it chooses to, and and it and it does. And there, I mean, there are some broad rules about the way that it tends to progress and, and whatever. But but effectively, just as you're saying. It can start in any region, in any pattern, and it, as you say, if you're losing neurons to your diaphragm, you're likely to present with respiratory uh, distress. And as a presenting feature, actually, that's very uncommon in the context of of MND. But obviously, speech or limb symptoms are much more common. Okay. And I guess, relatively speaking, we perhaps have many more, you know, bulbar neurons or limb neurons than we do necessarily have diaphragmatic ones. So it's a stochastic thing that so perhaps by chance then it's more likely to start in those groups than others but i mean that's conjecture really i mean we don't really know why mnd starts where it does can we myth bust slightly a confusing term which is which you've used a few times actually it took me a long time to get my head around which is bulbar um and what we mean by that in terms of symptoms because i think it's again that's a confusing it's very confusing terminology um so, so I would use I I tend not to use the terms bulbar and pseudo bulbar. So I just use, by bulbar I mean patients who've got symptoms that are affecting speech and swallow and or orolaryngeal function. Okay. Um, and so when I think about bulbar symptoms in the context of MND, um, I think you really see those in 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 two or three ways. So patients that present initially was so it's almost always and always makes me worry when it's not the case so it's almost always speech before swallow mm-hmm. if you, so if you're going to start with bulbar symptoms it should always be speech before swallow and if you see somebody starting with swallow problems you should always go back and review and doubt and question the diagnosis and, okay. and investigate those patients in in detail as a sort of rule of thumb um and 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 Patients presenting with bulbar symptoms will do in two ways. The vast majority of patients with motor neurons with bulbar symptoms will have what I would call bulbar onset MND. So in other words, what I mean by that is that often, if you look carefully enough at the time that they present, or certainly within six or 12 months of presentation, they will have limb symptoms. Right. 
And that's the vast majority of patients who present with bulbar disease. Mm. And I would call that, I would make a, a subtle, but I think important distinction that I would call that bulbar onset MND. Right. In contra uh, distinction to the, the term that's used, progressive bulbar palsy, mm. PBP. And I would use that for a very small group of patients, almost exclusively, not exclusively, but very much more women than men. And typically mid 70s and over who present with very focal often relatively rapidly progressing disabling bulk but purely focal bulbar disease who will lose speech and or swallow relatively quickly often anarthric or uh, very dysarthric within six or 12 months but with very little by way of limb symptoms at, at that time either presentation or even 12 or 18 or even 24 months in mm. and, and so they truly have a, a progressive bulbar palsy as opposed to, you know, a more generalized motor neurone disease. And, and the reason that distinction is important, it's not just semantic, is that anybody with, with focal disease, and I would consider that to be focal disease, will have a relatively better prognosis. So it's not uncommon, despite the age of those patients, that they'll actually do much better than would, you know, if you're, if you're a middle-aged man, if you're my age, and you get bulbar onset MND, you'll be dead in 18 months. Mm. Whereas if you're a 75 year old woman presenting with a progressive bulbar palsy in isolation, you might live five or six years or maybe more okay. typically. So those, those distinctions are important, but I, I try not to get too hung up on, you know, whether it's a spastic or pseudo bulbar dysarthria or dysfunctional, whether it's bulbar, i.e. a lower motor neuron, more flaccid phenomenon. I, I try and just think about bulbar function and, not get too hung up on it that is comforting to know <laughs> because i think you know when i'm teaching certainly teaching the undergrads people do get very fixated on this and i think it's confusing mm. um and uh, and actually again just being able to leave that to one side for a little bit and say look if you want to go down that rabbit hole that's fine but really yeah, there's, fine. They're, yeah. they're, they're a bigger fish to fry indeed yeah so and, and assuming the, the with MND, they're not really worried. Oh, you, I wonder if this is more bulbar than it is pseudo bulbar or whatever. I mean, yeah, you know, that's angels on the head of a pin, quite frankly. So uh, assuming, um, and this is kind of addressing one of the questions that's come in. Uh, assuming that we've sort of seen a patient, we've got an index of suspicion for a condition like a motor system degenerative disorder like mm. MND. Yeah. Um. And a referral is going to be made, particularly, and this is a question from the, from a GP. Yeah. What do you, what should they say to the patient? Um, what, um, what information do they impart? What, you know, at that time? So, I, yeah. So I would always attempt to be very, as I've already said earlier on, I would always attempt to be very speculative. Mm. And, you know, I would, let's say, they, I mean, if, let's say they present with a speech, problem for example i would say well this appears to be a problem with either the muscles or the nerves that are involved in controlling your speech and swallow and you know i think we need to get a neurologist to look at this and i would i would be as broad as that and i would attempt not to get drawn into the details and 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 sometimes you know patients i'll see patients when they've been referred on to me and they say well well then do you think this is motor neuron disease i said i, I I think there is a broad differential here. Mm. I'd be a bit like a politician and try and deflect the question. Because it, my experience has been over time, for patients I've seen who've been, so sometimes I get patients referred to me who've been told they've got motor neurone disease. They, they, 
come to me and I see them and I, and I think, well, I can't, I can't make that definitive diagnosis at this stage. But I think for them, trying to live in a kind of limbo where they've been told that's what the diagnosis is and yet it's not definitive, mm. I think that's really hard for patients to manage and deal yeah. with. For us as neurologists, we're used to dealing with that, that indefinite, somewhat unclear situation. That's kind of partly what we do, isn't it? Yes. Dealing with patients with sort of complex problems where there isn't immediately an obvious answer. And, and so my practice has been, and based on those observations over time, is to try, as I've said already many times, to try and avoid giving you know, a definitive diagnosis or using the term until I think that's what the, what the, the, the matter is. And I try and even deflect those questions when I'm asked directly. Yeah. And I think, it, I mean, diagnostic inaccuracy is, is part, of, part and parcel of the job, isn't it? Yeah. And by definition, it's greater for neurological things. It's, it's greater in primary care. I know this for, for Parkinsonian mm, sure. referrals, for example. So, uh, you know, but, but even, even, even me, <laughs> it's, oh. it's, you know, even me, even I get it wrong. Um, but, um, I think it is reasonable and that again, it coming back to that idea of like a motor system disorder, that's a reasonable mm. way of couching it or saying, look, there's a problem with the nerves and the muscles. Like you say, I, I, I think, the, I think the only danger, you know, we think that, that, you know, you and I would think of it, somebody saying, well, there's a motor system disorder is pretty vague, which is neurologist it would be, but to the lay public, particularly with them having Dr. Google at the end of their fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you put in motor system disorder into Google and you'll come up with MND. Sure. So, uh, so that's why I try to be extremely vague because, you know, you might think, well, I'm not actually using the term MND, so that's okay. But, it, but effectively, if you, you are because they'll go and Google it and that's what will come up. Mm. So I would, you know, I would attempt, you know, most, I mean, things that we're in difficult times at the moment, but most people with a description from, from primary care or whatever about a patient with, let's say with bulbar dysfunction, where they might say, you know, I'm concerned this might be MND or motor system disorder because they might use and maybe if they copy the letter to the patient, I'm not a big fan of that, as you know, um, then that's going to get seen fairly promptly. So yes. it's, there's not going to be a long, there's not going to be a long delay between you know, the, that patient getting referred and them getting seen and, and hopefully a bit more clarity being put. So I don't think you're, necessarily doing the patient any major disservice by being somewhat vague with them about what the underlying problem is because you tell them you've got MND that even then even a wait of two or three weeks or two or four weeks or whatever it might be to seeing it is a is a horrible time for them yes with that sort of Damocles hanging over them really uh, you know, I totally and, and even if and the diagnosis may well be correct very often is in my experience but but what they need then, what anybody would want in that situation is to see someone who can start to give them a bit more chapter and verse mm. about their condition and what it's going to mean for them. And that involves seeing, you know, you or me or, or whoever. Okay. There's a, a very good question has just come in. We were talking a minute or two ago about the kind of pattern of muscles involved. Um, and sort of, you know, limb and respiratory and bulbar. Mm. Um, what we didn't talk about was the muscles that aren't involved. Yes. And this uh, kind of classical teaching of eye muscles and continence and kind of sphincter muscle, that sort yeah. of stuff. Yes. Um, you know, now, uh, what's, the, what's the kind of truth behind eye muscles pr- preserved, for example? Okay. So, of course, as with all things, you know, all things in life are relative. Mm-hmm. And so um, if 
patients with motor neuron disease survive long enough, and increasingly now with ventilatory support, we're seeing that, then you will see eye movement involvement. So that the, and the best source of evidence for this is it comes from Japan from about oh probably 15 and 20 years ago, if not a little bit more, where traditionally a lot of patients with motor neuron disease were invasively ventilated for prolonged periods of time. Hmm. And if you ventilate patients with motor neuron disease for long enough and keep them alive for long enough, then they will lose eye movement and become locked in. Right. So the sparing of eye movements is relative. It is usually a very late phenomenon and often one that you won't see um, because patients won't survive long enough to, to get that problem. Mm. The mechanism of that is very interesting, of course. Um, the actual ocular muscles are innovated by it. There's another step. There's, there are pro, there are various brainstem nuclei, of course, so it's not a direct upper motor neuron to lower motor neuron to muscle pathway for the eye, for eye movements. It's via a pontine nucleus or whatever that controls mm. eye movement. So it's not, there are, there are at least, there's at least another set of neurons in that in that pathway and that might be mechanistically why there's relative protection although that's no one's sure about that um and this and but if i think back over now kind of approaching a couple of thousand people i've seen with motor neuron disease in the last 20 years um i can count on the fingers of one hand the number of patients who've had an eye movement disorder at right early in their disease i have seen a few it does happen and in least and you might think oh, well maybe they didn't have mnd maybe they had i don't know PSP or something else that could potentially mimic certain features of that. At least one of those patients went to post-mortem and had very characteristic MND pathology. So classically TDP43 protein deposition, so which is the equivalent of the Lewy body that you get in yeah. Parkinson's disease. So I think there is, it's rare, but it can happen, but typically I move to spared. And the same is generally true with sphincter function as well. In fact, I think sphincters are much less often directly affected with motor neurons even than eye movements. I think it's rare. Mm. I've seen occasional, particularly patients with more spastic syndromes who get a somewhat spastic bladder, you know, a lot of urgency, um, do bladder function very occasionally with bowel function. Um, but loss of continence is, in my experience, or major problems with continence, very uncommon, other than as a secondary phenomenon. So right. of course the problem is, once you become physically very immobile, all your abdominal wall muscles have atrophied so you can't push and strain and do all the usual things it's very common for patients with mnd uh, to get constipated um in part as well because of the nutritional um you know if they've been peg fed or whatever and they're getting you know basically very soft diets that are not with potentially very little residual bulk or mass to them to stimulate bowel they're not physically up and around to stimulate their bowels mm. they then can't get to the toilet to sit and they can't strain at stool as you and i would do um so secondary sphincter involvement um is very common primary sphincter involvement in mnd is very uncommon and if you do see it's more often in the sort of more spastic variant patients i.e right. a lot more how how reassured should I be, Tim, as uh, as a neurologist, by seeing a patient perhaps with with kind of predominantly motor symptoms and signs, but also sensory involvement and describing a lot of sensory symptoms? Should I should I be relatively reassured by that, or or am I falsely reassured? <laughs> You're not falsely reassured, but it should certainly stay your hand in making the diagnosis of motor neurons. Mm. So, um, 
I would say 10% of patients will have kind of vague sensory symptoms, mm. maybe a bit more. Um, and a, a smaller proportion will have some kind of soft sensory changes. So it should make you, I mean, you know, one of the most important things about providing an MND service, I think, is about absolutely challenging and pursuing potential alternative diagnoses. Mm. Big, and, and again, this is partly the, the behind my reasoning for saying that I try to avoid giving a diagnosis of MND until I'm absolutely certain. Because the moment I give MND as a diagnosis, I'm going to stop looking for anything else. Right. I'm going to focus on, right, now we need to think about how we're going to manage you and your MND and the problems that this is going to cause for you. And so um, I think it's appropriate that you seek as hard as you can and is as appropriate for alternative diagnoses. Now, that said, Sadly, the majority of people I see with MND, I would say at least 75, 80% of patients I see with MND, I see them and within, you know, five, 10 minutes of meeting them, they've got MND. And, you know, know, occasionally I will do investigations that are completely unnecessary, like I I might send them for EMGs or I might send them for bloods, mainly because like many of us, they're in a 20 minute consultation as opposed to the 40 minutes to an hour that I think is appropriate for people when they, when you're giving them that diagnosis mm. and I just need a ticket to get them out of the room. Um, so I can make arrangements to see them at a, at a, with a bit more time on my hands to go through things with them properly. Okay. Um, but the vast majority of patients are straightforward. I think there are a portion of patients where it's more difficult um, and it's appropriate to, you know, throw a diagnostic book at them. And I agree with you that sensory symptoms are one of the things that would, stay my hand but ultimately you know if the primary problem is they've got a progressive motor system disorder you know we keep coming back using that, that term which mm. is quite a useful term with or without a bit of sensory involvement you know if they're they've got a bit of sensory involvement but in fact they've gone off their legs and they've got weak and wasted lower limbs then you know unless you find an obvious structural explanation for that you know that's the that's where to focus things where uh, speaking of then of differentials i think which is, is maybe a useful sort of segue into that mm. what 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 have you seen over your time kind of running an mnd service you know repeatedly kind of missed or misdiagnosed are there some things that we should be we should be much better at as neurologists as general neurologists i i don't think there are any things that any of us would be so first of all the the, the false diagnosis rate with mnd is relatively low Mm. Uh, certainly it's probably in single figures as percentage wise so most most of us all of us should be reassured that it's not that often that people get that diagnosis wrong i think the the critical um and important diagnoses are um structural disease of the cervical spine so patients presenting with upper limb onset what i would call a sort of flail arm phenotype of motor neuron disease and you know you'll have seen enough of the patients in it with, with that pattern of disease that's probably about 10 percent of patients present with mnd and of course in, in the northeast of england i mean a bit less so now but in the northeast of england where traditionally a lot of people in the age group that get mnd have had manual occupations then intercurrent spondylotic disease of the cervical spine is common right and therefore often they've got mnd and they may or may not have a, a, a degree of of intercurrent degenerative spondylotic radicular disease um and i have in the past and i'm sure i will in the future i have sent patients for surgical decompression of the cervical spine when i think either that is 
the cause of their problems or is a very significant factor. Mm. The only caution to that, of course, is that increasingly now we recognise that um, any kind of surgical intervention for patients with motor neurone disease, and we're not sure whether it's a surgery or the anaesthetic or whatever, will often cause a stepwise deterioration in their MND. So you shouldn't be thinking about referring patients for surgery as a, as a sort of as a simple, you know, you need to be cautious in doing it because if they've got MND, it will often make that get quite a bit worse. Right. Okay. So you need to stay your hand, as all neurologists always would do in terms of referring patients to our neurosurgeon colleagues for any which is, which is no disrespect to the neurosurgeons. Obviously. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, what um, about other things? So, I, mean, I get worried yeah, about like multifocal motor neuropathy yeah, sometimes. Is that the next is, one? Yes. And so I remember I went and spoke at Richard Davenport's uh, advanced neurology course in Edinburgh, I think in about 2012. Hmm. And was asked that very question about, oh, what about people you see with alert? And I said, oh, I don't think I've ever seen anybody where I was. I thought there was an alternative diagnosis. And of course, you know, the moment you say something like that, but then in the next few years, you see umpteen people with syndromes that you, that you kind of thought were MND and then actually proved to be, and I can bring to mind, so James Miller and I have a, have a series of patients that we've co-managed who, you know, have, we thought of had multifocal motor neuropathy and have gone on to have MND. Um, I think that's probably commonest mm-hmm. and, and I've had a bit of IVIG and it's done nothing or, and James is very gestalt about these patients. You know, he will give them a single course of IVIG and if he cannot demonstrate any response, then he passes them on to me. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm a bit more liberal. I often give them more than one course. Because mm-hmm. I'm just you know, don't like making a diagnosis of MND despite the fact I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a smaller group of patients and certainly some I can bring to mind where I, I said to them, well, look, I, you know, despite what I said earlier on, I said I've said to them, I think you've got motor neurone disease, but there are some somewhat atypical features, and I think we might just seek another opinion. But I, I, I the reason I've said to them, I think about MND is because I think they're going to be coming back to me, and what I don't want them to go away is full. I want them to be absolutely realistic that if we're going to try, you know, a course of IVIG or whatever, it's with a relatively low likelihood. And there are two patients I can mean, one one man and one woman, both relatively young, which is all the things that would make you maybe question the diagnosis of MND, but who have had, and James and I both in our darker moments sit and talk about it over a cup of coffee, have had miraculous responses to IVIG that neither of us predicted. Right. One woman who effectively paralyzed and had been going downhill, the paraparetic, and looked like she got MND, um, and who has been resurrected with IVIG, and, and another patient who, uh, you know, I often see on the day you, and I always make a a point of saying hello to him so i kind of re- recognize my own shame and embarrassment whenever i see him who uh, uh came to me from another consultant that i saw and thought confidently had mnd but you know there was a predominance of lower motor neuron involvement but he had sort of retained reflexes in areas of wasting so you would think well that ought to be mnd then mm-hmm. um but who had i has had ivig and has responded very well to it and worked as a it was a chippy and got back, you know, he was, you know, interesting symptoms. So he say he used to, when he was, when he was hanging a door, he'd be able to support his, the door on his dorsiflect foot so that he could screw it into the hinges and yeah. up the ground. And at, at his worst point, he couldn't do that. And now he can. Right. Um, and there are other, you've got other multifocal, as, as the name suggests, you've got other areas of multifocal motor dysfunction, but you know, has, has done very well. And is, you know, is alive five or six years down the road, to tell the tale, so you know, not completely, but almost by definition, doesn't have MND because of that. But yeah. so I think those are the two, the two, so the two important. I think there are three important diagnoses. So I think 
spondylitis disease of the cyclist spine, multifocal neuropathy, and the other one is in, is inclusion body myopathy. Right. And the, the, one of the things about inclusion body myopathy is that often in its early stages, neurophysiologically, where you're looking for something to support your diagnosis, it can be very difficult to differentiate from sort of softish neurogenic change to support a diagnosis of MND versus early myopathic change to support a myopathy. And again, I've been caught out with that a couple of times. And are there any top tips? I mean, so the, the neck thing I, I sort of get, and I think that's it's mm. such a common conundrum. Um, yeah. the, I feel like inclusion body disease is, is, um, is a bit of a blind spot for me. And I, uh, at least once a year, end up kicking myself for, you know. You're, 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 you're not alone. Missing I, it. I, yeah, you know, how, I, I, how can I improve? You know, is that, <laughs> what, are, what are the, what are, how can I get that out of my blind spot? What, what you need to do is refer those patients to James Miller, who makes you feel extremely embarrassed, and then you'll always be better the next time. Okay, because I, I, I do often refer says, him. Oh, and he... very absolutely characteristic <laughs> weakness of the long finger flexors. Yeah. And you think, oh, bollocks yes because that's sorry, my problem audience, yes, yes. Yeah, i'm sure the audience will forgive that because i definitely feel that and even when i've looked for the long finger flexor weakness mm. and the you know selective patterns of atrophy with um brachioradialis or whatever and i feel like i haven't uncovered those i send them to james and he uncovers them yeah it's, it's almost a bates-esque moment when he calls you into the examination room say would you like to examine the long finger flexors for me uh, yeah dr williams and you kind of do and you know the clearly there where you can yeah. And again, because, you know, you, you get, re- with MND, you'll get registering of, of finger flexors. It's always the extensors which are more significantly affected than the flexors. So that would be long finger flexion weakness in excess of that, which you might see the extension would be very odd in the context of MND. Yeah, that's, that's useful to know. And, and with um, multifocal motor neuropathy, which again mm. is a difficult one. Yeah. The only thing that, because, I, and I've not seen it often, seems to have like a sort of finger drop and sort of odd little kind of... Yeah. But you can, you can see selective finger drop with MND as well. I right. saw a woman just this week, actually, who said that her first symptom was dropping of her uh, index finger of her left hand. So, I mean, it's talked about, but I, uh, you, know, you can get it, but you can get it in MND as well. Mm. Um, I think that, that they're very difficult to distinguish. And it's, you know, it's not uncommon that, that James and I, as I say, will have patients in whom we will give trials of, of IVIG and I, you know, I will commonly, you know, check some anti-myelin antibodies. So obviously GM1 is the one that everybody thinks about. Um, I, I saw, I can remember a patient about three or four years ago who was sent to me from Carlisle with MND. I would have sworn blindly at MND. Um, and in fairness to the neurophysiologist, both over in Cumbria and when it was repeated at the RVI, there was some suggestion there's just sort of hint of sort of slowing of conduction in some of his EMGs, but he's certainly denervating or whatever. Mm. And anyway... I mean, it should have been done in, in Cumbria, but it, I did it when he was here, and he had a teacher of anti-GM1s that was over 100,000. Right. And it, But then I sent to James, so, you know, I'm pretty confident this guy's got, you know, a GM1 multifocal neuropathy. But even James, I'm, I'm pleased to be able to say to him, I said, bloody hell, it doesn't half look like MND, though. <laughs> okay. And, it, I mean, the sort of... If you see a patient, um, say like it's sort of an MND, you, that, that's your top of your list, but you've got a few little kind of misgivings maybe, and you, and you want to cross the T's and dot the I's, what would be a reasonable sort of palette of investigations to expect or to, to request, do you think? So I, I suppose that in terms of the, I would certainly 
make sure that their their thyroid function is is normal. So so hyperthyroidism in particular can very easily mimic um, MND. Mm-hmm. Paul Paul Dorman was telling me about a patient we saw just this week actually who'd got you know muscle flickering and and very brisk reflex and whatever who was grossly hyperthyroid. So right. okay. I would check their their euthyroid. Um, I would always check uh, their um, serum chemistry, so protein electrophoresis and, and free chains, free light chains, to make sure they haven't got a, uh, an immune-mediated um, neuropathy. They're, they're rare, but again, I've been caught out before with people with you know, cryoglobulin anemias and, and, and funny sort of myelomatous mm-hmm. um, disorders. Um, and again, if it's a predominantly lower motor neuron syndrome, I might think about doing the anti-GM1s. And I, I wax and wane a little bit with it. I, I, I go through phases where I do a lot of Kennedy's um, genetics with people right. with predominantly low motor neuron syndromes and then phases when then they always come back negative. I've only ever diagnosed, <laughs> I think I've only ever had three patients with, with Kennedy's. Um, so I'm probably missing a lot is the answer. But I go through phases where I do lots of tests when I've seen one. Uh, for a, you know, a couple of years, mm. they're always negative, and I just yeah, lose interest and stop doing yes. them. And what role CK um, in that differential? So, as as you most people here will be aware, CK of a few hundred, four, five, six hundred, something that you see, and that wouldn't put me off. Once it goes over a thousand, I would start to get nervous. So, a thousand is my kind of cutoff for where I would start to get worried. But of course, something in the region of six hundred to a a thousand is right in the ballpark for inclusion body myopathy, of course. Yeah, and I guess and that's the point. Would you would you expect inclusion body to have a higher CK than a no, thousand? No, not really. No? no, I think that's. I think it can be. So it's worth you know having that in mind. I think the other couple of rules of thumb is that um, the things that don't correlate well with disease prognosis and progression are CK. So you you can see people with what I believe to be a motor system degeneration, very indolent disease, but yet with a CK of six or 700, but who've just grumbled on over years and years and years. Right. Um, so it, it doesn't, it wouldn't put me off, but it doesn't help you. You know, so if somebody's got very rapidly progressive disease, you might sadly die in six or 12 months from onset. I, they wouldn't necessarily expect them to have a higher CK than someone who's got a disease that's grumbling. And the other thing that is very useful diagnostically, but not in the least bit useful prognostically is fasciculation. So very prominent, persistent, predominantly proximal fasciculation, I think is very useful diagnostically for MND. Mm. Although, of course, you would always expect a degree of wasting and or weakness. Um, But because someone has got extremely prominent fasciculation, that does not correlate with a poor prognosis. Uh, And again, so one of my stories I always use with the medical students when I do my MND teaching sessions is I've got a video of, of fasciculation and I've seen one or two people before and since who had very prominent. But I, I remember I went and got my back in the days when you had those little handheld VCR video cameras. So I went home and got my video camera and came back and videoed this guy's circulation on, on Old Ward 11 at the RVI. <laughs> and I used that video because it's the best demonstration of circulation. And that guy died four years later of an M- unrelated MI with very little progression of his motor system right. problem. And yet, this is the video I use because it's just got very prominent circulation. Okay. So it, it useful diagnostically, but don't, I wouldn't use that as a, you know, and patients often get very worried about it. So I think you can actually to be a degree, you know, they might have rapidly progressive disease, but that's not because the, the fasciculation isn't necessarily a marker of that, yeah. but you could reassure them. They shouldn't worry that that's 
necessarily a sign that things are degenerating very quickly. Okay. And I, I don't really want to focus for the purpose of this conversation too much on neurophysiology and diagnostic mm. criteria and those sorts of things. I think no. Uh, well, there is a question that has come through about, you know, is, is there anything fancier or newer coming? Um, there's, there's a lot of interest in neurofilament testing isn't yeah. it, for MS and for lots of other yeah. things. So I, I think the, the, the problem with neurofilament or neurofilaments is that it's, it's sensitive but not very specific. Hmm. So in other words, there are a, neuro, a number of conditions, so particularly Alzheimer's disease, and you would know that, I don't know the literature regarding Parkinson's disease very well, but I suspect you probably see certain neurofilaments which are up in, presumably in Parkinson's disease. Yeah. You certainly see neurofilaments up in MND, and they correlate with disease, rate of disease progression. Okay. So if you're a fast progressor, then your neurofilaments will remain up for the duration of your disease. And if you're a slow progressor, they'll be up, but they'll be relatively lower. But they're not useful diagnostically for the reasons I've already explained. There are a number of other conditions that can mm. put your neurofilaments up. So potentially moving forward, we may get diagnostic algorithms that might involve using neurofilaments. And we're starting to get to a point where you can now accurately measure neurofilament in blood rather than having to look in CSF. Mm-hmm. So it's potentially becoming more immediately available, but they are not, they, they're potentially useful prognostically. They're not very useful diagnostically. They may become useful as um, an indicator of, of, of effectiveness or otherwise of treatment. Okay. So, so the best example, we've, yeah. So we, the best example we've got of that, which we may talk about a bit later on, time allows is about, antisense therapies so the only mm. one at the moment which is seems to be having traction is uh, as an anti-sod one antisense and not only does that seem to have had a functional impact on patients treated but has lowered their neurofilament oh yeah we definitely want to talk about that because that's a, a, a pretty hot topic all around but mm. uh, um before we do that or move on to yeah, that sort sure. of um, yeah. stuff uh, i i noticed with interest a moment ago that the word fasciculation yeah. uh, was used repeatedly in the singular. Yes. So, so I, <laughs> <laughs> you know what, you know what a pedant I am. I do. And, and, and you might be aware that Mark Baker and I have recently gone to press about the use of the term fasciculation. I, I am. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I believe that, that fasciculation is only ever used in the singular in the same way that you don't talk about constipations. You would only talk about constipation. Mm. So I would argue that you should only talk about fasciculation. And again, when, when Mark and I penned that letter to practical neurology, uh, Mark then went and very fastidiously sought back through uh, historic um, publications in the neurological uh, literature and found historically that fasciculation had initially only been used in, in the singular. So I would always talk about patients having fasciculation rather than fasciculations. And that's because it's a sort of a phenomenon. Of- yeah. Of denervation and and aberrant reinnervation. Yeah, I mean, people have argued back and forth. I mean, Peter Fawcett used to speak for hours about what's the electrophysiological substrate of fasciculation. Mm. Um, I I don't think that's terribly important, but I, I agree with you. The way I've always explained it to patients when it's become been necessary is that you know what it represents is is an enlargement of the individual motor unit. So the motor unit is any is a, is a number of nerve of muscle fibers that are innervated by a single motor nerve. And I don't know what the figure of that is in physiologically, but in motor neurone disease where there is attempted reinnervation, the size of that motor unit increases. Now all of us have a spontaneous firing um, 
uh, of our motor units. And so if they are larger and that spontaneous firing happens, then it might then become visible to the naked eye. Yeah. And, and, um, and the, I, that's what I imagine fasciculation to be. I mean, interestingly, um, we're involved in a study which is currently suspended because of all the COVID stuff that's going on, but we're looking at um, MR imaging of fasciculation. And so I would typically look for fasciculation, pathological fasciculation in context of motor disease in the calf muscles, for example. But we have demonstrated by MR that you can show very prominent deep fasciculation in calf muscles, and we think that might be quite useful um i mean it might be useful diagnostically although you'd be pretty much scraping the bottom of the diagnostic barrel if that were the case but it <laughs> but it but it might be useful again you were talking about biomarkers so if we were trying to think about something which might tell us about the efficacy or otherwise of a, of a treatment then potentially that might have a role so we've got a little bit of we've got a kind of proof of principle we need to establish that a bit more definitely that that is a useful kind of diagnostic biomarker and then potentially sort of the treatment biomarker for 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 MND, I, I still occasionally see uh, the odd patient getting flicked um, mm-hmm. by students to bring out the fasciculation. Yeah. Uh, I, I often pull pull people up on that as probably being unnecessary based on the neurophysiological backdrop to fasciculation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, no, I, I agree. I so I'm not a, I'm not a muscle flicker. <laughs> like you are sometimes. I sometimes ask them why they're doing that. Um, I would rather they spent 30 seconds longer just looking carefully mm. for circulation than trying to induce it. Yeah. And, and, um, and as I think as you're suggesting, I would also question the pathological relevance of a circulation induced by flicking a muscle as opposed <laughs> to one which might occur spontaneously. Good. Well, I'm glad you said that because I, I, I do get very uh, opinionated about things like that occasionally. And then I think perhaps I've overstepped. Um, it's, it's your maturity as a neurologist, actually. <laughs> yeah, I just need to lose that kind of uncertainty and just really go with it then, and then I'll know I've made it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah good. And um, and I think the other thing I've learned painfully, I think, through mistakes is that, and this is kind of like an examination tip, I think, um, that I find the hard way is if you don't expose patients properly, if you get a little yeah. bit lazy in undressing yeah. people, yeah. Um, then you have no chance. No, I, 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 I think that's right. So the one thing I always kind of steal myself to do, even in the most disabled patients is to try and get some exposure just so that I'm certain that I've seen you know, various muscle groups that I need to see to look for circulation or wasting mm. or other features and to, to expose and, and it probably able to examine reflexes. Now I agree. I think that, you know, that, that move increasingly towards being, you know, becoming too test based and not enough based in good solid physical examination. And as you say, that's where you will make mistakes and miss, um, miss things a bit like yeah. looking for the long finger flexes actually that you and I yeah. need to do but... <laughs> and I think yeah and, and uh, although it's maybe not practical in a busy clinic for every patient to be no. you know down to their briefs or whatever I think yeah. uh, you know as, as a bare minimum anybody that you think has a neuromuscular presentation be that you think it maybe it's myasthenia mm-hmm maybe it's a kind of neuropathy, yeah. motor neuropathy or an MND. I think that group or a myopathy, I think all of those patients benefit from being really closely looked at, don't they? 
no, I, I agree. So, yeah, I'd be worried if I, if I you know, noticed that, that a colleague was examining somebody in their briefs who presented with tension headache. Yes. But, um, <laughs> but at the same time, and I, and I wouldn't go as far as getting those patients to strip off. But as you say, patients where you're concerned about neuromuscular disease of, of almost any type, then absolutely the, the you know, proper examination inspection is really fundamental to their assessment. Good. Um, I, I do have a, I mean, we've talked a little bit about kind of common differentials, I suppose, um, you know, I, all of us uh, that trained in the era of big grand rounds with capital G's and capital R's for neurology have carry the scars of the kind of train wreck moment where this is a uh, this is a classical one, Doctor Archibald. You know, t- t- take yeah. us take us through. It's a spot diagnosis, and you just <laughs> a, little bit, a little piece of you dies. Yeah. Um, so, for the benefits of uh, our registrars in that scenario, <laughs> what are the sort of uh, the sort of kind of MND mimic variant kind of ep- eponyms? You've used one already. But uh, you know what, what you know if if there were three things that they should have in their locker, just as a kind of neuro oddity, a, a lot of things that might potentially appear as MND but aren't. Yeah, or or a, or a classic sort of MND variant presentation. Do you know what I mean? Um, okay, so um, I would certainly recognise the flail arm variant as something mm-hmm. that's not always recognised by everybody's MND, but by anybody that looks after or has managed a significant number of people as MND would recognise as a, as a common variant. So this is patients that will present typically with unilateral going into bilateral upper limb weakness and wasting, um, often very profoundly disabling, to the, as, as the name suggests, with the arms becoming completely flail. Mm-hmm. That represents probably 10% or so of patients with, with MND. So it's actually a relatively common variant, but one to be um, aware of. And much more, so we know that MND is somewhat more common in men than women. That's almost exclusively explained on the basis of, of younger onset disease. So it's extremely rare for me to see patient, female patients under the age of 45 with MND, whereas men under the age of 40 and sadly under the age of 30, you know, I might see every year or 18 months somebody under the age of 30. Mm. But women of that age is very uncommon. Um, but in flail arm, it's about, six or seven men to every one woman as opposed to a couple of men to every woman or one and a half right. men. To okay. so, it's, so it's very much, you do see women with it, but it's much, much more common with men. And you can see a similar phenomenon with um, the flail leg phenotype. And they, the, both of those phenotypes are important because they're both associated with a prognosis, which is typically about twice that you, you might expect to see. So often five or six years as opposed to two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's worth, again, as I was saying right back at the very beginning of this, it's about trying to glean from an assessment of a patient something that will allow you to individualise their prognosis for them rather than just saying, oh, well, the average survival for this condition is, you know, two and a half years from symptom onset, off you go. It's trying to say, well, actually, I don't think that's the case for you. I think this okay. is that's still slow. So look out for flail arm. Um, I would be certainly be aware of the um, speech always being worse than swallow. Mm-hmm. And that if it isn't, that should make you question the diagnosis. So, you know, think about structural disease of the base of skull and, and nasopharynx. Okay. Um, and, and I've certainly seen that a few times. Um, what other... Any, uh, any, and, and any annoying eponyms, uh, you know, 
or, or acronyms that kind of masquerade or catch us out in the grand round? Um, well, I mean, as you know, I don't like an anterior horn cell as a term. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other variance, I suppose, that is prominent in the sort of, well, certainly in the neurological press that I read, but then it's a bit more focused, I guess, is, is this condition called facial onset sensory motor neuropathy or FOSMAN that some people would have heard of. And Hugo, who's one of our current academic trainees, is, is gathering together uh, our local experience and some experience with colleagues in Australia about this. So this is a, a condition which, as the name suggests, starts with a disturbance of facial sensation, mm-hmm. typically in a kind of muzzle distribution, which then gradually spreads outwards and then becomes associated with bulbar dysfunction and thereafter behaves like MND, um, but in a relatively indolent way. Um, and of the patients I've seen, so I've probably got five or six now that I've gathered, of whom two have been to post-mortem, both the ones that went to post-mortem, had typical MND TDP43 pathology. Right. But intriguingly, actually had TDP43 protein deposition in their sensory trigeminal nuclei. To which explain their sensory symptoms, but that is a very it's a variant of MND, right? Um, and that's now becoming increasingly recognised. We've that's something we've with Hugo and others that we've pushed quite hard to to establish. Okay, um, because I think it's important. Though, it's important those patients should come to an MND service because I think they benefit from you know multi- multidisciplinary support. Okay, those age problems can be motor ones, um, and and of course the, you know the rarer the pure lower motor neuron. I know we were trying to avoid using those terms on the, on the pure upmoking your own degenerative syndromes are always the more, most difficult ones to diagnose and to be absolutely definitive in, in diagnosis. Um, you know, because Particularly the upper one, I think, cause it's just so, uh, so kind of evasive to mm. the sort of test. Most of our tests are kind of targeting the peripheral parts of the nervous yeah. system, aren't they? That we, and, and it's so hard to get at that central bit. Yeah, we, we, we don't really, we don't have a good test for that in the absence of obvious structural disease of, of any type, you know, intrinsic or extrinsic. Um, and, and, you know, motor, uh, motor vote potentials and things like that have been mooted as a, mm. I've not found them useful. Um, yeah. it, it ultimately, as you said, as you suggest, particularly the, the spastic variants is ultimately a diagnosis of exclusion. Yeah. And you end um, up, you really do end up kind of just relentlessly imaging and CSF yeah. studies and long chain and fatty acids and all exactly all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, very, very long and extensive and very rarefied genetic testing that's almost, yeah, it's always negative, of course. Yeah. I mean, there are a few cases, you know, people that we've, we had somebody present at our, still our grand round with a slightly smaller G and smaller R than was perhaps historically the case with Alexander's disease, which is, you know, as you know, genetically determined. Um, white matter disorder and that, and, and that in, in late onset forms can have features that look very much like a sort of MND type picture to the patient we had recently. And that's a GFAP mutation that's associated with that particular okay. leukodystrophy. Great. Okay. So I think well, I mean, we're so- really, we're really into back ends of fine. Yeah. Well, we don't, I, I, yeah. And it's, it's, uh, that's not my strength. <laughs> no, and I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think it should be anybody, you know, if you, if you see someone with, painless progressive weakness with wasted muscles and brisk reflexes then you should be thinking mnd good okay not not the zebra not the zebra rattling past the window um you did mention um multidisciplinary team uh yeah. kind of working there which you know and I, I think um that's hugely important for any neuro, particularly neurodegenerative disorders where we yeah. have kind of limited treatments um if you had, if money was no object, 
um, and you could just choose your personnel. Yeah. Um, you know, what's your, what would be your wish, wish list for your ideal kind of MND team? Okay. So I would, I would want, well, it should, there should be a, there should be a neurologist with expertise in both the diagnosis and management of MND. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that ideally you would have um, nurse specialists come care coordinators. Uh, you have access, um, which I've got in our team in Newcastle. Um, you would have, as well as a number of mem- someone else who might fill that role, I think someone with an OT background is really useful. So okay. we're now lucky enough, one of the care coordinators that, that works in our team in, in, in Newcastle, we've now got, I'm going to do the maths, two whole time equivalents in total and 0.6 of, of that is is actually no t it's mm-hmm. been it's been a really major addition to the team having that knowledge of of you know what is viable and doable in the context of home environments and you know what can we chivy and encourage people to get done and what is beyond you know the, the ken of most people and services mm-hmm. um i think it would be it would be good we don't have but it would be good to have a speech and language therapist who was either a member of the team or who had got you know regularly came and joined your clinics and had expertise um for those patients so we're very lucky in that over time you know there's a sort of fairly limited band of of speech and language therapists who cover the patch that where i'm responsible who have a particular interest in and have gained expertise in in patients with mnd and helped support our service both in terms of assessing patients with that condition and also on occasions prompting GPs or other specialists to refer patients to us where they've seen the patient they think they've got MND. Mm. Yeah. Um, we're very lucky that we have a physiotherapist in our team as well. And that's actually really useful both in terms of trying to provide all our patients with a kind of suggestions about a dedicated exercise program, about looking at respiratory physiotherapy to try and delay the need for and improve the efficiency of, of ventilatory support. Um, when that becomes necessary, but also having more specialist knowledge of some of the of the um, orthoses that can be useful. So, particularly, I'm thinking about neck support in that setting. Mm. Um, that we, she, the physio that works with us, spends quite a lot of her time assessing people both in, in clinic and on a, sometimes on a domiciliary basis, COVID allowing, um, for for to provide various different types of. You know, we probably carry oh, at least half a dozen different types of neck support collars and things in our clinic that we regularly provide to patients including the much mooted sheffield collar which you may or may not have seen or heard of which is fine it has its role but actually in our experiences it can be useful but it's not it's not a panacea it's not as if 80 percent of our patients who need head support found the sheffield collar is the answer right. it's like all of you know it's it's you know it's about half the patients you try it on which is pretty much the same with all of the various collars um and what, who else would I, and then I think that the final component to that would be having either in your team or very good access to um, an expert respiratory support service. Mm. And I suppose that then leads into questions around ventilatory support. And I mean, certainly the pendulum has swung um, steadily towards non-invasive ventilation, hasn't it, over? Yeah. So Rightly so, so, I think. Yes, 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 and no. So, if if we if I take you back to the seminal study of um, non-invasive ventilation support for MND, which which originated from Newcastle, as, as you as you will know. Yes. So the the primary endpoint for that study 
was a measure of quality of life mm-hmm. in hand with survival. So we demonstrated um, a significant and sustained improvement in quality of life in those patients who were able to tolerate NIV, and also hand in hand with that, a survival benefit as well. I constantly state in clinic, both to patients and to other members of the team that will listen and anybody else that might be there and to trainees of, and medical students that ventilatory support of various types should be used uh, for symptom relief, not to improve survival. Um, now, I often, and I'll say to patients, you know, spin off of this is, is if you use this, not only would it make you feel better, but actually as a spin off, if you tolerate it, actually will improve your survival. And that's not necessarily, that's often a good thing. Mm-hmm. But that's not the reason I'm, I'm not referring. I'm referring you and considering using that and talking to you about using it because you have some symptoms which are very significantly affecting your quality of life, fatigue, poor appetite, weight loss, poor sleep, morning headache, cognitive impairment, which I think are as a consequence of hypoventilation. And so if we can reverse that, we can improve those symptoms. And as I say, maybe as a spin-off, there will then be an improvement in survival. And, and the average is six to nine months improvement in survival. Um, from instigation, successful instigation of NIV. But, so the, the one failing, I, I bet there are lots of others, but the, the major failing of our study was that we didn't look at quality of life of carers. Mm. So actually a, the quality of life of patients treated and, and successfully tolerating NIV um, is improved and is sustained. The quality of life for um, carers is almost exactly the inverse of that really and the main the main reason for that is that the increased care burden so although we can sustain your quality of life and your life indeed what we can't do is stop the progression of mnd so you would never become significantly more disabled than the mm-hmm. natural disease would have meant so you will need more interventions at home more physical adaptation of your home environment and in likelihood a greater care package which may or may not be provided by solely by your family and wife or partner or spouse or husband or whatever but might require you know external carers and whatever coming in to help you and your family to manage which wouldn't have been the case had you not continued to live of course yeah and i I will and i discuss all of those things with patients when we're considering niv and it irritates me when that what i would consider to be an analytic approach to that intervention is omitted so i get lots of patients that I mean, the, the NIV service in Newcastle are very good. So if they get referrals from about an MND patient from another source other than us, they almost always just immediately contact me and say, we've had this referral, what should we do? Mm. Which one I'll say, well, I'm probably seeing them in clinic in a couple of weeks' time. Why don't you just hang on and we'll wait and we'll see yeah. to make sure they've had a proper nuanced discussion about the pros and cons of this intervention. Rather than I, just... I'm, I'm interested in you. And I, I think it's, it's useful to hear that sort of idea that, that this is a quality of life intervention Mm. um i have a very similar conversation with some of my neurology patients who may require a peg tube um, with neurodegenerative disorders because what you're not doing is preventing them aspirating necessarily absolutely not although of course what i would do is challenge you to find an evidence base that um peg in any neurological disease improves quality of life because we've done we've tried to do those studies in mnd and failed and right. if you were going to try and introduce, if, if PEG had never been invented, when you and I invented it t- tonight or tomorrow, um, then inevitably before we'd like to use it, we'd say, well, you need to demonstrate efficacy well, actually, and benefit in terms of quality of life or whatever. And actually at the moment, those studies either don't exist or where they've been done, they've disappointingly failed to provide that 
a reassuring evidence base. So, so that, that's a blind spot in our knowledge, much like it does leave a dope of work in the over 75s. Um, right. which, uh, I wasn't aware which, that was a blind spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, none of, all of the all of the L-dopa trials and dopamine agonist oh, trials have all been done in p- patients with an average age yeah. of about sixty. Yeah. Um, anyway, by the way, but uh, yeah. I, I think this idea that you know, if you're spending, if each meal is taking you a, an hour and a half, is going yeah. cold, if you yeah. have to waste four and a half hours of your day trying to get nutrition and hydration and medication into you. Mm. And you could use that time better. I think that's a way to think about peg tubes. I couldn't agree with you more. I think the single most important indication to consider a gastrostomy is is slow feeding rate and and problems potentially with medication, but more particularly where meal times are just taking forever and food's going cold and they're struggling. Weight loss or whatever doesn't worry me. In fact, the evidence that patients gain weight post gastrostomy and MND again is not very compelling mm-hmm. but if if they're just finding meals are slow and laborious and of course often they start to lose appetite simply because meal times are no longer enjoyable and it's a, it's a pain for them so it you know it has a secondary subsequent you know weight loss phenomenon in that respect so that's the it's you know what are meal times like how slow how difficult are they that would be i would think the most relevant question in terms of whether gastrostomy might might have a role and and intuitively as you suggested your impression would be if gastrostomy is successful then it would improve that and thereby quality of the patient's life because they're not wasting hours doing that of course they can still take bits and pieces of food by mouth yeah, i always exactly. encourage my patients to do that i will say it's as well as not instead of mm. um, and, that, and the course of proportion will change but you, you, you know intuitively you say well that must improve quality of life so despite the absence of, of good data to corroborate that from studies like you know in my heart of hearts what do i think i think it does yeah, and I, I think I, I came to that that conversational realization about uh, you know how to pitch the idea of that intervention of a peg tube. I, I came to that late, I think, and you know, and I think through my training, I've uh, how I've approached the use of peg tubes has altered over time, and I think I'm now at a, a place where I, you know, I think that is the right way to think about peg tubes. I I, I didn't come I didn't come out in, in, into consultant practice with all those formed. You know, no, I, I, you know, it took me time as well. I think the conversation I have about gastrostomy, um, about uh, NIV or whatever, is a lot better and more informed now than it was when I when those interventions first became something we were starting to use. What are so, the things about NIV, Tim, that that MND patients find hardest to cope with? Um, so. I think, again, and one of the things I try to do when I talk to them about that is empower them to say that the main reason for using this is about improving your quality of life and thereby, if you struggle with it, it doesn't, you don't feel it makes you sleep better, feel better, be able to eat more, um, then you should feel perfectly happy to just toss the mask to one side and not use it. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly true for patients with bulbar disease who struggle more than patients with good bulbar function to tolerate NIV. So I think that is very important about making patients feel that this is a treatment to improve quality of life and if it does improve the quality of life you shouldn't persist with it now again it could take several weeks sometimes for patients to accommodate to like you know as i often say to them that you know going to bed with a mask strapped across your face is not physiological that's not how you were designed to go to bed at night so don't expect to strap a mask on and instantly have eight hours beauty sleep mm-hmm. and of course some patients some patients do but that's pretty uncommon um so I expect them to take the time. 
sorry, I've lost myself a little bit. What was the other? other so I think, you know, so you're saying that sort of bulbar patients find NIV harder yeah. to tolerate. Yeah. Uh, what about kind of, you know, actually getting the mask on and with, with impaired limb function? Yeah. So again, I'm also, so clearly m- most patients even with limited upper limb function will be able to get a mask off because mm-hmm. it's often got grab straps on the Velcro that you can, once you can get your thumb hooked into it or whatever, you can get the mask off. But getting it on and properly positioned can be very difficult. So it's generally speaking, if there's any, it's not an intervention that, that is, can be often successfully initiated where patients live independently. Right. So if they're going to have, if they live on their own and they're going to have NIV, it often means they're going to need a significant care package. Or if they, they don't, then they're going to become dependent on their spouses. And interestingly, and this has been shown in a number of studies, you're much more likely to get an IV and to see, succeed with this if you're a bloke than if you're a woman. And that's generally because women are much better carers uh, than are men. It's a bit of the sort of Andy Cap type. <laughs> you know, the husbands of, wife, of, of women with MND will say, well, that's far too much trouble. Love, you don't really want to do this, do you? You know, this is going to keep me up at night rather than, you know. So, and that's studies that have been done not in a sort of very controlled way in the UK, but certainly from Scandinavia that have been done. It showed exactly the same data in it. Everybody kind of struggled hard to think about why that was, but actually the answer's a bit embarrassingly oh, obvious. No. We're a terrible gender, aren't we? We are, really. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, it's um, yeah, changing. Those, those gender biases, I think, are less <laughs> than they were. And, yes. you know, it would be wrong for me to say I've, we've, I've had some patients where their husbands or male partners or whatever or sons have been fantastic, amazing mm. carers. Yes. Um, and I've had some where, where their wives or daughters or whatever have not. But as a general rule of thumb, you know, most of the Mrs. Cannybodies of the Northeast have been stoic, amazing mm. people that have looked after their husbands or partners or whatever without batting an eyelid or ever questioning what they should be doing. Yeah. I suppose, um, say... Going back to something you mentioned very, very early on in the conversation was about kind of new treatments. And mm. there's this massive buzz at the minute about anti-sense oligonucleotides for, uh, you know, sort of genetically determined neurodegenerative yeah. disorders. It's the first time we've sort of seen anything like that coming through. Yeah. Probably lots of it's overhyped, like a lot of new things. But what's your, you know, what role does that okay is that going to have okay so so putting aside those those treatments in other neurological initiatives we just mm. focus on their role in mnd yes i think the first thing to remember is that monogenetic mnd represents probably overall no more than 10 percent of uh our patient group mm-hmm. and therefore uh, gen- these treatments are going to have no impact or benefit for probably 90% of my patients. Right. Number one. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, um, and the, the other problem for this is that because you're just blocking the gene, what, what we don't know is why most of the gene mono, monogenetic abnormalities associated with MND, what we don't know about any of them is why they cause MND. <laughs> okay. So hence by blocking them, we can, the evidence emerging is that it may have some impact on the disease, but it's telling us nothing about disease mechanism, thereby intellectually it's somewhat bereft of any real integrity because it's not actually helping the MND population generally by telling, giving us great insight into disease mechanism. Okay. Um, and there are other factors about, you know, the 
commercial companies involved in developing these drugs losing interest in the whole of the rest of MND by the time they get one of these drugs to market because they're going to make so much money from flogging one drug to a very small percentage of my patients they're going to lose interest in all the rest of the patients who are not benefiting at all mm. so putting all of those bi- all of my biases about that aside, <laughs> and I, I am very biased about that and I struggle with it um, on an intellectual and kind of quasi-emotional level um, so far there is some promising evidence emerging and some of the audience on who are listening in now will have been at Pam Shaw's lecture when she came to speak in Newcastle in October, where she gave some um, preliminary as yet unpublished data about the, the SOD1 antisense trials. So there's, there's a bit of benefit. So there are multiple um, point mutations of the SOD1 gene associated with MND. I think now more than 160 different point mutations um, in that gene. Um, but fortunately, they've got an antisense which seems to uh, have impact on, is, is not mutation specific, right. reassurance, fortunately. So you don't have to make a designer drug for each of those patients. To get it in context, patients with SOD1 mutations represent approximately 1% of my, 1% to 2% of my total patient disease burden. Okay. So again, coming back to my argument before, that's 98% of my patients who have not been helped by this therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is evidence that it reduces... Um, neurofilament levels so as a biomarker as you were mentioning before um it it appears to stabilize and in some i mean some published so it has yet a bit sort of anecdotal improved function okay um and so there is there are murmurings that at, at this stage a, a, a moderately sized phase two trial may lead to the fda licensing the drug without a phase three trial wow. in the states which is pretty uncommon. It's not yeah. completely unheard of, but it's pretty uncommon. But obviously, it will be a pretty expensive therapy. It's for a pretty small proportion of the patient group. And at the moment, that treatment is delivered intrathecally. Mm. So um, it, it has a number of, of problems about it. I don't think at the moment we have any idea what cost that might come in at. Um, but to give you an idea... Um, there is a viral vector delivered treatment for SMA, which is, you know, is a pediatric, mm-hmm. um, predominantly, well, exclusively low motor neuron syndrome that's invariably fatal, um, well, pretty much invariably fatal by one year of life, if not before. And this single shot treatment, if given early enough, is not completely curative, but very effective. Or, and, and the drug companies that have the license for that, they're talking about charging $4 million for a treatment. Although I will mention to you that that treatment is currently suspended because uh, in non-human primate studies, I mean, it has been used in some humans, but in non-human primate studies, it appears to induce a very unpleasant, very nasty dorsal root ganglionopathy. So oh, the non-human dear. primate studies. So the, the gloss may be coming off that a little bit. Right. Yes. And so I mean, if, you've that, got, that was... if, you've got, if you've got shares in nusinersin, you might still be quidlin, which is nusinersin. <laughs> The antisense oligonucleotide for that condition. So Doctor Lord is rubbing, rubbing his hands in glee every day when he, when I tell him that the viral vector treatment has been suspended. And is there a um... so, so anyways that, that and there are trials ongoing for um, the C9 um, uh, ORF72 gene mutation, which as you probably know is a, is the commonest, and that represents about forty or so percent of um, gen- monogenetic causes of, of MND. So, so that's forty percent of your ten percent. Yeah. Um, so it's probably the, the interestingly, and as you're probably aware, 
a fair proportion, I mean, less than 10%, but a, a not insignificant number of patients with apparent sporadic MND actually proved to have a genetic abnormality, which chromosome C9 is the commonest. Mm. So it's probably 6%. Okay. Maybe. And although genetic disease in the Northeast is, MND is, is less common than, than other areas of the world and lower than the, probably the average, I think. Do, do, are we going to see these, if successful, these treatments then being used for pre-symptomatic gene carriers, well, do you think? That, so that's a, that's a very good question and, and a, a very relevant question. So at the moment, clearly, they're only being used for patients who are symptomatic. So no one has, has treated any, anybody in the pre-symptomatic phase. Part of the problem is that carrying so let's go to sod one because that's the one we've got most information about in terms of the treatment mm-hmm. part of the problem with sod one so if i think about the, the families that i look after where i've seen more than one person or generation with in the same family with that carrying that gene is that carrying the mutation does not predict the age of onset site of onset and the speed of progression of your disease so question number one would be okay if you're going to use it at a pre-symptomatic stage then when Mm-hmm. And then, as I say at the moment, that involves intrathecal drug delivery. So, um, you know, you're, you're going to a very selective group of patients who are going to put themselves forward to having regular intrathecal injections for a very prolonged period of time. Yeah. And the outcome of that study might take a long time to come forth. Yes. So, I, I think in practical terms, unless a single shot therapy along the lines of the one that I've discussed or mentioned in the context of SMA, mm. unless that is developed, I think that's probably not a realistic proposition. That said, I suspect once the drug gets licensed, there will be very affluent patients in the States who perhaps are at risk and carry that gene mutation who will perhaps persuade their caring physician to administer that treatment to them. But it will be speculative in terms of yeah. when and when. It's difficult because I guess for the one, the one, the one shot treatment, you can't ungive um, it. If something then, five or ten years down the line, starts to come out of the well, I, I guess the the one benefit is if if there's not much, not many benefits, but if you happen to be an asymptomatic sod one carrier, hmm. um, and you know, and I I have a few that I'm aware of and who I monitor, most of them are you know, five or 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 years or more away from when they're likely to get the disease. Although it doesn't, it's no absolute rule. It's often in around about sort of 10 years plus or minus mm. kind of range. So I would argue them that they need to just keep their powder dry and wait and watch and see because the likelihood is this will, the science and understanding of this will advance very rapidly, yes. I think over the next five years or so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I think that's a good point, because right? I get asked a little bit about this in the movement disorder clinic, and of mm. course, Hunt, Huntington's disease is probably yeah, the one that is moving fastest. Yeah. Um, yes. But yes, I think that's it's it's an interesting direction for all of us to have to think about now, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the uh, the, the the benefit in hunts is that you can use the number of your size of the expansion to you know model to to model when you might expect to develop symptoms, so it does have some predictive value. Um, and therefore, you could predict when you might reasonably start to consider giving asymptomatic patients treatment. Possibly, I don't know. It's not. Yeah. It's not by any means my field of my expertise. Huntington's uh, disease that is, but I, I think it might be slightly easier in that context. But still, far from yeah straightforward. There's a question has just come in, which has um, flummoxed me slightly from Sim uh, uh, about uh, a Daravone. 
being used by yeah. neurologists in the States. Yeah. I, I must admit, uh, ignorance on Adaravone. Okay, um, so Adaravone is a sort of antioxidant therapy that was originally um, trialed for use in stroke, and I think actually in Parkinson's disease, interestingly enough. Um, and a trial was conducted in, in Japan using it as an intravenous infusion. So it's administered um, for 10 days every month. The reason it's for every 10 days is you get it five days, one week, weekend break, and then five days the next week. So not for any pharmacological reason, but simply for the practicalities of being able to give it. And then you get, then you get an intro of a fortnight, I presumably because patients wouldn't want to sit in hospital every day, all day, every day to get the infusion. Mm -hmm. And the original trial was negative, but they did a post hoc analysis of the data and demonstrated that in patients with more recent diagnosis, so in the early stage of the disease or early from onset, did show benefit. They did not show a survival benefit, but they showed a slowing. So as in all diseases, there are functional rating scales. So in MND, the ALS functional rating scale, we all, we all have one. And of course, like all frame scales, it's prone to ceiling and floor effects. But that aside, what they were able to show is that they, they could... Um, lessen the slope of the curve of deterioration in your ALS score. So 48 would be normal. Um, zero is obviously the lowest you can get. Most patients, once you get into the very low 20s or into the teens, most patients are then by then deed. Um, so there is a kind of floor effect, if you like. But they could show that, so average is to lose between one and a half and three points a month, mm. average. Um, they were able to show some slowing of that by a, maybe a point, maybe a bit less. You, and you might now very reasonably question, well, is that significant? And the answer is that subsequently we've done some studies looking at what is the significant change in your ALS functional rating scale that patients will notice. And the answer is that is something between four and six points. Right. So it has, it has an effect that over certainly the period of a month, patients would not notice. Right. Um, so statistically so, significant, but clinically undetectable yeah with no no survival benefit and marginal possible functional benefit um for that reason it was initially not licensed in the states they did another study sim purely looking at patients with uh diagnosed early from onset and i think they again showed a mark the same sort of uh, benefit of this in the same kind of order of magnitude um i think the drug has now been licensed in the states it is not licensed in the UK. It's very unlikely to get a license in the UK. They are, there is a fairly advanced stage now of, of undertaking a trial using an oral version of Endarovone, which I presume would be administered consistently. If, um, so I would argue, as I've argued in meetings, MND meetings, both nationally and internationally for the last 10 years, that if a drug is of marginal benefit when administered intravenously, then it's probably very unlikely to have much effect if you give it orally, when mm. I presume its efficacy is likely to be less. And number one, so intuitively, I would think that's not likely to be a great benefit. And the second thing is, I don't want to trial a drug that has marginal benefit where the, the effect of that drug will be lost in the noise, the biological noise variant that you see with MND, which mm. is what's true of result. You know, I yeah. can't, when my patients come to clinic, I, tell you, I can't tell you which ones are on really is on which ones aren't on the basis of how they are because variation in disease progression is huge between one patient to the next. So what I want is a drug that will have a 50% impact on disease progression because I'll notice that in clinic. Mm -hmm. 
and my patients will notice that. So I would say rather than wasting millions of pounds trying to bring to market a drug that is of marginal efficacy and benefit, I'd rather you went and spent your money improving your basic science knowledge of MND to come up with a more effective treatment. That's a good, good point. I think, Tim, I had a, a kind of last question because we've taken up a lot of your evening. Um, I asked Reese this last week, and I think I might ask everybody this qu- question as we go along, which is, um, you know, what advice would you give to your younger self as a fledgling neurology SHO or, you know, year one or two registrar? Is there anything that you look back and you think, I really wish I'd known that? So, okay. So the one thing I always still say to trainees when I see them is I would, if you can, I would try and go work abroad hmm. or somewhere else in a different system. Yeah. So go to, go to the antipodes, you know, for a year or so or something. I, and, I, and everybody's really, so just to put that into focus. So my daughter, against my better advice, is currently in F2, who was, <laughs> who was, who was planning to go to New Zealand this autumn, but is not going to now because of the COVID crisis and no one quite knows what's going to happen there, despite the fact they've done better with COVID than we have. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, that's fine. You can get yourself another job here and go next year. I said, Oh God, but dad, that's a year. I'll be so much older and that'll be my career. We start to close down. So, and of course, as you and I know, uh, and, and, but what is not always apparent is that actually a year is neither here nor there. Exactly. And I think the likelihood that door significant doors that you might want to have opened will close because you went and spend a year or even two years somewhere else is, extremely unlikely if not unheard of so that is a sort of general piece of advice to people in their careers i would encourage them and that's my one regret is that i didn't ever go um to do training really outside the northeast i did a year in middlesbrough but you know apart from that i don't think that kinds and i think the other piece of advice that i would give is which i picked up i think through some of the people that train me is that Clinical skills are still what are most important. You've touched on that a little bit as well. You're talking about examination. So, you know, being able to take a good history and to conduct a thorough and accurate physical examination. And that will help you more than anything else as a neurologist. Mm. You know, clinical phenotyping of the problem in front of you is going to be the most useful tool in your armamentarium going forward, despite increasing reliance on tests and investigations. Yeah. They'll be a bit old school and come back to the physical science yeah and trusty the, trusty tendon hammer and yeah and and, and 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 as everybody says but increasingly it's more you know it's more the history more than anything isn't it yeah. it's, it's it's tempo of disease is is tells you much more about what a condition is and where it is than does necessarily the science but both are both mm. useful. that was tim williams consultant neurologist and mnd specialist and i've been neil archibald not an mnd specialist but feeling closer to it now than I did at the start of the podcast. Join us next week when Louise Wiblin, consultant neurologist at James Cook, speaks to Professor David Byrne, ABN President, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Newcastle University, movement disorder expert extraordinaire, about how a career in clinical neurology can take you in some unexpected directions.